The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Speaking about cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I'm lucky today to be filling in for our host, Kim Thibaldo, who is the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org and by the telephone at 1-888-793-9355. Cancer affects not just the people diagnosed with it, but also their caregivers, their friends, and their families. The responsibilities of a caregiver vary by each situation, but undoubtedly these people play a very important role in the lives of people with cancer. In the United States, families are often spread all over, on opposite coasts or in opposite climates, in different time zones, and this aspect can present challenges when someone in the family is diagnosed with cancer, when everyone can't be where they want to be all at the same time. It's important for these people to remember that they are not alone. And in fact, it is estimated that 7 million people in the United States are long-distance caregivers. Many of these people are family members of someone with cancer, daughters and sons, brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews. We'll be exploring the unique challenges of long-distance caregiving on today's show. Joining us on today's show is Sarah Goldberger. Sarah is the Senior Director of Programs here at the Cancer Support Community. Sarah is responsible for developing new programs and ensuring quality standards of program delivery across the Cancer Support Community Affiliate Network. Sarah has worked in the field of psychosocial oncology for the past 19 years and was the Director of Program Support at Gilda's Club Worldwide. Previously, she served as Program Director of Gilda's Club Westchester for six years. She began her social work career at Calvary Hospital, an acute care hospital for terminally ill cancer patients. She received her master's in social work from Columbia University in New York, where she was the Dean's Award Scholar in recognition of excellence in both academics and clinical work in the field. And Sarah, since we are taping this show in March, I would be remiss in not saying to you, happy Social Work Month. Well, thank you, Linda, for that introduction, and thank you for um, recognizing me as a social worker and also all of the wonderful social workers and oncology social workers in particular who may be listening in today. Um, I think they provide an incredibly valuable resource to 
not only people diagnosed with cancer, but also to the caregivers, families, and friends. Oh, absolutely. And we, comprehensive cancer care could not be provided without the licensed mental health professionals, including the, the, the social workers. So happy social work month. Thank I also you. wanted to just quickly remind our listeners that you and I had the opportunity to do a show together earlier this year on improving mental wellness for um, caregivers. So not, not specific to the caregiving at a distance, but um, specific to caregivers. And I would encourage listeners to go back on voiceamerica.com and, and look at the show that was aired on January the 14th and uh, take a listen to that as well. Great. And some of what we'll talk about today, I have a feeling, will overlap somewhat. But as you noted, um, uh, long-distance caregiving has its own unique set of uh, challenges and, and rewards. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. So let's let's start off today by stepping back just a little bit and um, helping the listener really uh, define what is a caregiver. Great. Um, so it's an interesting word, and I was actually with a, a group of um, oncology professionals just yesterday, and we were talking about how the word caregiver really doesn't capture the experience of people who are involved and care about someone who's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, But it is the language when you do the research that most people understand easily. Um, But I I do want to emphasize that it it really is the unpaid help in this case um, that helps to arrange and coordinate um, the care of someone who's been diagnosed with cancer. And obviously, long-distance caregivers are those who don't live in the immediate um, vicinity of the person who has been diagnosed with cancer. And it could be, um, you know, as you noted, it could be an hour away, but it also could be in a completely different uh, part of this country and time zone or even in a foreign country, um, the way um, the world works these days. So let's let's talk about some of the things that caregivers do to support a loved one with cancer. Sure. Um, So generally speaking, um, and we'll, I guess, do a deeper dive into the um, long-distance caregivers, but what we're talking about really is the physical, the emotional, the social, and the practical assistance that um, anyone may be providing Uh, to someone who is diagnosed with cancer. Um, It is not just um, the physical care. So, um, you know, many people may say, well, I'm not really a caregiver, but in fact, if you are doing any of those things, even, um, you know, uh, sending cards or making phone calls uh, to someone who's been diagnosed with cancer just to sort of cheer them up or see how they're doing, you are, in fact, in my estimation, a caregiver. And so when you think about long-distance caregiving, um, you know, looking at those parameters of physical, social, emotional, practical, can long-distance caregivers be as helpful as caregivers who are on site, if you will? They absolutely can. It will, you know, there will be differences in how they do it, when they do it, and the kinds of help that they're able to provide. You know, there um, there are families where it's, um, you know, uh, an an adult couple where one of them has cancer and it's the, um, you know, the partner, the spouse, who's providing most of the care, but you may have four children scattered throughout the country, maybe even one of whom lives locally and is not a long-distance caregiver, but the others certainly can be involved in many of the same kinds of ways. 
And so if, you're, if your family is working together as a caregiving team, how do you decide who plays what role or mm-hmm. where everyone sort of fits? Right. Um, I think it's important um, that everyone have a role. And there are always things that people can do, even those who live at a great distance. Um, I, I'm remembering a family that I worked with um, a while back, and, and there were, I think, three daughters and a son um, and um, mom and dad. And um, the family really was very well-functioning, but the son felt very left out. Um, he, he and I, I think all the daughters lived remotely. Um, but it turns out that he actually was an accountant. Mm-hmm. And so the family figured out that one thing he could do from a distance that actually no one else wanted to do or was very good at was to take care of some of the bills and the insurance. And that gave him a role that he was comfortable with and that was really useful to the family and that he could do from a distance. Um, so sort of doing a little uh, family assessment and seeing who, what capabilities everyone has and kind of sharing the, um, the responsibilities and making sure that everybody feels involved um, as much as they can. I think mm-hmm. we'll talk about this more, but one of the challenges is that everybody feels involved and nobody feels overburdened, and, and that's a, a delicate balance um, and requires a lot of checking in. Sure. And what what can you do to share caregiving responsibility and be involved in helping out uh, if if you live far away? You know, so how do you you know start that conversation? You know, I think you said you start with a family assessment, but you know, what are some really practical ways in which to get that dialogue moving? So I think it's really important, um, you know, if you can do it on diagnosis, and and it changes over time as well. Um, um, you know, the, the, there will be role shifts as, as people either um, do well and don't need as much care or don't do as well and need additional care or more care. Um, things will change. But I think, you know, a family meeting is a great idea. And when I say family meeting, um, you can't see me, but I'm using those finger quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. what I, you know, one of the, the good things about living uh, today is that we do have some technology that will support that. So a conference call or if you can Skype or, or FaceTime or any of those things where everybody can be involved and engaged to sort of see, how, you know, what are the needs and um, how will you divide them up. Um, yeah. You know, family communication is tough under the best of times. Um, But here's a time where everybody has to recognize that we're all, you know, as a family going to pull together and try and make this um, work best for, obviously, the person who's diagnosed with cancer and the primary caregiver, but also the rest of the family so they feel connected and involved and engaged. So what, what, what advice would you have if um, there's a, a, a person with cancer and there's no one from the family that lives in the area? Yeah, tough, um, tough situation. Um, I think that there are some options. I would encourage people to talk with their health care team. Um, uh, March is, on call, is uh, social work month, so if there's an oncology social worker, um, there may be opportunities for family to pull together and hire private help um, to reach out to local friends who may want to be involved. Um, very often, if your family member is um, 
involved in a faith-based organization. They might have a group of people who, you know, a caring committee. Um, I've heard it called. I imagine there are many other names. Um, those are just some of the ideas that, that, I, I, that come to mind. Um, you can also, and, you know, I, I recognize this is uh, dependent on each individual's family situation, but maybe it's a, a situation where you can take turns. So, you know, um, Johnny comes for a week um, and then goes home, and then Mary comes for a week and then goes home, and you, you, you work it out that way. And it's important also to recognize what are the real needs, when are the times when somebody really does need to be there phys- physically, you know, immediately following surgery, yes, um, maybe to attend a critical doctor's appointment, um, there may be times when it is okay for a person to um, only have um, people caring from a distance. And, and yeah, the it, point I want to make there, Linda, I'm sorry, um, is it, if you're caring from a distance, don't be afraid to ask other people. There may be lots of people who are willing to help, um, and you can even engage the, the um, patient in this by asking, like, who, you know, who are your friends? Who are the people you see all the time who maybe said, can I do anything? Um, no one likes to ask for help. We're just not good at it. But this is a time when you really have to learn um, that it's important to ask for help because there may actually be more help available than you think. Well, and to one of your your um, original points, it all begins with a family assessment. And this mm-hmm. sounds like it's an important part of the family assessment. Yeah, I think we're making it sort of assessment may sound a little scary, um, but I think just sort of taking stock of who can do what um, and recognize that you you may have to stretch a little bit to do whatever it is you're going to do. Right, absolutely. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is brought to you by ASI, Teva, Genentech, and Amgen. We have to take a quick commercial break, but we will be back to speak more with Sarah on this important topic of caregiving from a distance right after the commercial. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I am standing in for our host today, Kim Tebaldo, who is off and will be back with us next week. Today, we're talking about long-distance caregiving with Sarah Goldberger, who is the Senior Director of Programs here at the Cancer Support Community. And in this segment, we would like to go over some of the challenges of caregiving at a distance. We've just completed a conversation about how do you take a family inventory, divvy up some of the, uh, the work and the responsibilities. Now, uh, Sarah, let's, let's talk about some of the, uh, the particular challenges of caregiving at a distance. I know that you can't always tell how someone is doing over the phone or in today's day over the, uh, the Internet. Um, sometimes our loved ones might not want to admit that they're having trouble with daily activities or they just might not want to worry us. So how can you tell if someone far away needs your support? It's a tough one, Linda. Um, You know, really, I think um, primarily it's about um, open and honest dialogue with your loved ones. Um, I think they don't want to worry us, um, but I think that we really have to engage them in that conversation and tell them that if we have a sense that we don't really know how they are, that's when we worry. If they're realistic and they're telling us what's going on, um, we worry less. So, so that open and honest communication, I think, is really important. Um, I think um, technology can help somewhat. Um, you know, the Skyping and the, the um, um, uh, Facebook, uh, nope, FaceTime <laughs> um, can help. Um, you can actually 
see the person. You can watch for visual cues that you don't only, you know, you, ha- you don't have over the telephone. Um, you can ask others. Um, if you've got a sibling maybe who came from out of town to visit, um, ask them really what they sense. Um, ask friends and family who, other fr- family who may live close by what they're seeing day to day. Um, and visit. Um, you know, try to visit regularly. Um, and this will serve two purposes. You'll have an accurate um, assessment of what's going on, but also um, being for yourself is often the best thing to do, even though it's not always possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love your suggestion about the visual technology, right? Yeah. Um, time and Skype, I think that's uh, a great suggestion. Yeah, it was harder years ago. These things, you know, we, we complain a lot about technology, but in fact, in many ways, it has made life easier. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And so if you aren't able to visit often, you know, changes in your loved one's health and appearance may seem a little bit more dramatic than mm-hmm. when you see them um, every day. So how, how do you prepare yourself to cope with, you know, what might be an unexpected or feared change? Um, again, I think these are honest conversations that you're having with either your the person in your life who has been diagnosed with cancer or other family members and friends. How does mom look? Um, you know, those changes when you're with somebody every day are you're less likely to notice them than if you're seeing somebody once a month or, or sometimes even, you know, once a week, you'll notice the changes more. And again, I would say use the technology when you can. I recognize not everybody can Skype and FaceTime. Um, but um, I think it's important um, to sort of hold your, yourself in check as much as you can when you see somebody um, and their physical appearance has changed dramatically. Um, mm-hmm. Don't tell them they look great. Right. When, well, when we can't be there in person to care for someone that we love, you know, it can be hard to recognize the signs of emotional distress. You know, those, are, those aren't as, as, as readily apparent. Mm-hmm. So how can you tell if your loved one with cancer could be depressed or anxious or have some other uh, emotional distress? You know, what are some of the signs to look for? So, right. Um, I think it's sort of, um, and I'll go into a little more detail, but I think it's being able to read between the lines and to really listen carefully and ask questions. So, you know, when you call and, and I, I say, so what would you do today? And I hear nothing. I want to know more about that. Well, you know, Tuesday is usually the day you get your hair done or you go and get a manicure or, you know, you play cards with the guys. Um, you didn't do that today? No. And maybe the answer is, well, if you live here in the East Coast, there was too much snow, but maybe the answer is I didn't feel up to it. Um, and if you're hearing that repeatedly as a pattern, it may not be physical limitations that are keeping someone from that. It may be the um, um, a, a sign of depression. Um, people who are anxious often um, can't, um, they, they'll repeat themselves, their speech will be pressured. Um, you will hear the worry in their voice often. Um, and I think also, again, going back to this family communication, um, it's fine to say to people, you sound anxious, you sound sad or depressed, um, and, and see what comes back. Mm-hmm. And I suspect there would be some change in the frequency 
of communication in some way. Maybe it's that's a, a really good point, Linda. You could see, you know, if, if mom usually calls you every Sunday or every day um, and that pattern changes, that could be a sign of, of depression, sort of that sort of drawing within um, that you want to try and um, address. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, let's just, uh, I just want to talk specifically about um, one of the challenges I know a number of our patients face, and especially if you're a long-distance caregiver, you may not pick up on this as readily, but the financial challenges of um, having cancer. And, um, you know, I I understand that there is the conversation between the family and, and, and the patient about that, but it seems like that would be a particularly challenging stressor to pick up if you're caregiving from a distance. Yeah, um... I think you're right. I think what parent wants to tell their their child that they're using money for co-pays instead of for groceries. Um, but again, it's these open um, it's open communication. I think if there are people visiting in the home, um, you know, to be sure that that um, every the, the house is warm and there's food in the refrigerator, um, those kinds of things to do those check-ins to offer to help financially if you're able. And to say that, you know, this is something uh, uh, that's going to help me feel better about my ability to be a caregiver because I can't be there, um, can I help financially? Um, And, again, it's these open, honest conversations um, with family members about the current situation that that we want as caregivers. We want to be able to help, but we also have to recognize that it's hard for um, family members to ask for help. Especially financial help. Well, and and are there other challenges that that you would like to just sort of raise along with with techniques or suggestions about about caregiving from a distance? Yeah, I think it's um, I, I think it's it's not uncommon for um, family members who are or friends who are caring from a distance to feel sort of helpless and guilty. They wish they could do more. Um, they may even feel um, jealous of the person who might be on site and can do more of the hands-on caregiving. Um, that, that, that sort of, and even resentment sometimes of those feelings. Um, this is a complicated world we live in, and people make life choices based on, um, you know, a situation where maybe cancer wasn't involved. And if you could go back in time, you know, and know that in, in five years or three years, someone in your family close to you is going to be diagnosed. Maybe you wouldn't take that job across the country, but you didn't know that then, and now you can't go back. Um, so I think it's important that people recognize that, um, you know, when I hear um, caregivers, both those who are, um, you know, primary caregivers or are on-site caregivers and people caring from a distance, really um, the people on-site often will admit um, they wish they weren't there. They wish they were the other sibling who lived far away. They just, it's so stressful for them. And the sibling who is far away um, wishes they could be closer. So to be respectful of that in each other, that that there is no perfect um, way to do it. Right, and it definitely is a, a partnership. Yep. Yep. This is Linda House. I am with Sarah Goldberger. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. 
Today's show is brought to you by ASI, Genentech, and Amgen. We are talking about caregiving from a distance, and I would encourage you to also visit a show that Sarah and I did together just a couple of months ago on January 14th, archived on Voice America, on other issues related to uh, caregiving. We will be back in just a moment right after this quick break. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host, Linda House, Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community. Today for Kim Tebeldo, who will be joining us again next week. 
And today I am so lucky to be joined by Sarah Goldberger, who is the Senior Director of Programs here at the Cancer Support Community. And we are talking today about long-distance caregiving. And Sarah, sharing the responsibilities of caregiving among siblings and other relatives can really put stress on families. And in this segment, we are going to cover how to handle the stress, both on the patient side as well as on the family side. And with the mix of emotion that caregiving can bring, and you talked about that a little bit on the last segment, you know, that ranges from frustration to guilt to jealousy. You know, if you're experiencing those feelings, can you just give us or or, or revisit with us some of the ways in which people can cope with those feelings? Sure, um, and I, I think it's important that they do cope. They do make some efforts to cope with them. It um, it really can make a tremendous difference in um, the, pers- the the caregiver and also for the patients as well as their stress. You know, if you think about it, the last thing mom and dad want is tension among the kids and fighting among the kids um, during an, what's already a stressful time. Um, so I think that you know one thing that people forget is that if you are a long-distance caregiver, you can join a local support group for caregivers. Um, And in the past when I've suggested that to people, it seems so obvious, but they don't really see themselves as caregivers in the sense that the person who's living in the house would. You know, we would all say, um, so mom who's living with dad who has prostate cancer, she should join a support group, right? Um, Because being a caregiver is stressful. But um, equally... So, so can anybody who's caring at a distance um, find a local support group. You can call our helpline. Uh, Linda gave the phone number, but I will give it again, 888-793-9355. If you want assistance um, finding a local support group, ask your, um, someone on your healthcare team, your oncology nurse, the social worker. There are often great resources for what's happening locally. Um, I think there's a lot of um, resources available to caregivers, that print materials, online materials, and if that's the way that um, that information would be helpful to you, I encourage um, uh, people caring at a distance to take advantage of that as well. Um, talking to a counselor, talking to um, someone if you're involved in a faith-based organization, um, priest, your minister, your rabbi, those people can be extraordinarily helpful other friends who've been through a similar situation, um, people who will just listen um, and let you talk. And so if you are a long-distance caregiver, is there a way to tell if you are doing enough or doing too much? You know, are there signs that you should look out for that could mean that you're neglecting yourself or, you know, if you're a loved one watching someone who's trying to care give from a distance? Um, are there signs that they should be uh, watching for? Sure. Um, you know, again, I think it's about balance in your life. You are at a distance. We, you know, that's the reality. And there's, there, is, there is only so much you can do from a distance. So if you're constantly um, on the phone to family and friends um, or you're taking, you know, your boss has been saying, gee, you've been out of work a lot because you've been visiting um, you're losing a lot, you know, the same signs of, of stress that you normally feel. Um, you're losing sleep. You're not eating well. Um, it's, it's really, those are signals that maybe you are doing too much. Um, 
I think also um, many of us have sort of what I call our weak spots, and for some it's their stomach, for some it's the back, other people get headaches or neck tension, and to be aware, you know, to be aware of your body and what your body is telling you about your level of stress. Um, and I'm not saying that this is not a stressful situation. Um, it, it will wax and wane probably over time, the amount of stress. Um, but you probably can expect that there will be times where you will feel stress. And I think learning tips and um, stress management techniques are going to be very helpful. Maybe it's, you know, jogging or meditating or um, shopping or having coffee with a friend. But all of us need to really um, use those um, coping muscles uh, during caregiving from a distance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that sometimes that's leaning on your... your own immediate family who may be in the same house with you. Absolutely. So so speak a little bit about about conflict that that may arise between family members. Uh, You you mentioned it previously, but give us some specific ways in which to flag tension early, identify when there may be conflicts arising between family members, and and how how do you cope with those before they blow up? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I like to remind people of is that um, people, when they're under stress, for the most part, behave like they always did, only more so. So the people say more about that. <laughs> well, the people who are easily overwhelmed get incredibly overwhelmed. The um, people who sort of like to control everything, try to control everything even more. So be aware of those patterns in your family members. We all have them. Um, they'll be different in every family and different in every person. But you can expect that, oh, my brother, he's the take charge kind of guy, the oldest one in the family. He is a control freak. And when he's stressed, he, I can expect that he's going to be even more so. So, so I think it's helpful to be able to predict the behavior The other Mm -hmm. thing that happens is that patterns, you know, and this is especially true with um, siblings um, caring for adult parents, is that old family roles resurface. So think about when you all get together maybe for a Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, the baby of the family, everybody's trying to take care of the baby who's now 43 years old um, and protect Mm -hmm. the baby maybe, and the oldest Sibling, um, you know, is the one who's always large and in charge, and maybe there's one daughter in the family, and she's the one who takes all the responsibility on her and says, I'll take care of everything, and she and the older brother, you know, get into it. So be be aware of those kinds of situations, that those are sort of the the things to watch for. Mm -hmm. And, again, to have these conversations. Look, folks, um, this is crunch time. We need to cooperate as a family. Um, maybe set up some ground rules in advance of how, how people are going to behave and how you are going to um, act when you don't agree. Um, how, how are we going to work through this? You can, um, again, I think a family meeting is always a good idea. You can, if people are in town at the same time, you can um, meet with maybe the social worker or a counselor or, again, someone from your faith-based organization to kind of talk these things through. Um, you can also do it probably by Skype or FaceTime, uh, a family meeting. You know, let's let's use the technology that we have. Well, and I suspect this. So let's just park conflicts for a moment and talk about 
trying to identify within families, again, outside of the patient, because I know we're going to speak to that in, in, in just a little bit, but um, how do you identify when a family member, so a sibling, you know, somebody who you are co-caregiving with, has distress? And what do you do um, about that? You know, I think some of the ways are the same as we discussed when, when it's the person with cancer. You know, if they're pulling way back and you're not hearing from them as often, that could be a sign that they're overwhelmed and stressed. Um, if they are um, very un- un- uncharacteristically angry um, or controlling, you know, changes in, in behavior, I think, are, are, are indicators that something's up. Um, and again, I think it's it's speaking openly and honestly. I, I am concerned about you. Um, you know, this is stressful on all of this, but I feel like something's going on with you, and I really want to be able to help if I can. Those me- kinds of messages. Mm-hmm. And listen. Um, you know, I think um, I saw a, um, a bumper sticker the other day, and maybe some of our listeners have seen it. It says, um, wag more, bark less. Um, and I, in my mind, I sort of translated that to, you know, they're talking about a dog, but I, I was translating it to that same sort of um, listen more, talk less. Mm-hmm. And it is as important to watch for levels of distress in family members as it is uh, anything else. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about um, social and emotional support for, um, for, for. The patient and uh, and other 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 caregivers that may be close to the patient. So we know that the patients need social emotional support, and you know how do you bring the caregiver and the patient together in identifying and delivering that support, whether they are near or far. So I think that the same kinds of supports that are available. You know, we talk a lot about the patient, the patient, the patient, but. Um, I think that the caregivers are really the co-patients or, you know, a phrase I've used before is that the first place a cancer metastasizes to is to the family and they clearly need um, their own support. I know um, through the cancer support community, we um, really don't make a whole lot of distinction between uh, caregivers and um, people diagnosed with cancer. There are the same kinds of activities for each one at our affiliates. And I know that other organizations also are concerned about the needs of the caregivers. So, again, locally there may be support groups, educational programs, um, healthy lifestyle opportunities, you know, learn to meditate, those kinds of things. Um, um, I think respite care is incredibly important. And what I mean by that is that if there is a child or a spouse who is really physically on site doing most of the care, um, um, you know, doing the transportation to the doctor's office, um, even, even for someone who doesn't need a lot of physical care, there's still a lot of caregiving involved, mm-hmm. um, that to come in and, um, you know, let that sibling know, look, I'm coming in in two weeks and um, I want to spend some time with you, but I also want you take advantage of the time that I'm there and maybe I can do the transportation or I can go, um, you know, to the doctor's office or go to the grocery store and you take some time for yourself. I I think that's a very important role that family members can play. Mm -hmm. Um, I think making sure that um, the primary caregiver or the person who's on site 
has um, what they need, um, you know, and it can be, and, and, and that you're thinking about them. You don't take them for granted. So send them flowers, send them a meal, um, you know, be sure to take care of them. Those are great tips. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is brought to you in part by Lilly Oncology, AstraZeneca, Millennium, the Takeda Oncology Company, and Purdue Pharma. We have to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be back soon with our final segment with our guest, Sarah Goldberger. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Speaking about cancer, my name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, standing in today for Kim Tebaldo, who will be with you next week. Our show today is sponsored in part by McKesson's Giving Comfort Program, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Morphotech. Today we've been talking about long-distance caregiving, and I've been joined by Sarah Goldberger, who is the Senior Director of Programs here at the Cancer Support Community. And if you are a long-distance caregiver, the time the time you do see your loved one with cancer may take a lot of planning. And so in this last segment, we'll discuss how do you make the most of the time that you have 
with your family member, given that you may be there for a limited period of time with having to travel um, and, and visit with others while you're, while you're there. So, Sarah, maybe you could address this uh, for us. When you are able to visit with your loved one in person, how can you make sure that the visit is helpful, productive, satisfying, and that you're able to enjoy quality time? Great. Um, great question. I think um, planning is important um, so that you know what's going on in the time that you're going to be there while you're visiting. Um, who else is flying in from out of town and how much you know, time are they going to want with the person with cancer or the primary caregiver? How much um, alone time do you want with all of those individuals? Um, so I think prioritizing your time it's really important. Are there doctor's visits that you feel, um, you know, you want to participate in? Um, maybe you're interviewing a paid, um, you know, their family's decided that they want to hire someone to help care part-time, or um, and you can be involved in the interviewing. So it's, it'll depend what's going on. Um, I think um, having those difficult conversations, the, the conversations that may be difficult to have over the phone, um, plan to have those in advance, and if you need help with that, plan to set up a meeting with some of those individuals we mentioned before, the social worker, your, um, you know, your minister, rabbi, priest, um, a counselor, um, even just other family members. You know, family me- there are families that function very well and can have these conversations um, amongst themselves and, and really resolve whatever issues there are that need to be resolved. Um, I think it's you know, be realistic about what you can accomplish in a visit. Um, I think sometimes what happens with um, family members traveling in from out of town is they sort of feel like their time is limited and they have to get everything accomplished and they sort of swoop in and take over. And, um, you know, the the primary um, caregiver who's there all the time feels pushed aside. Um, I've seen that happen. Um, So be sure to... um, you know, talk with the, with the primary caregiver about what their expectations are and how you can help them. Um, I think we talked in the earlier segment about respite care for the caregiver who's on site. Um, again, these are just some options to, to be thinking about. Um, and, and also to remember that um, sometimes if you live at a distance, it, it's not uncommon um, you know, we talked about maybe the primary caregiver feeling a little resentful, like, oh, here comes Mary. She gets to waltz in and out of here whenever she feels like it, um, and she comes in and takes over. But it also, you might feel a little bit challenged um, kind of um, inserting yourself into what are, have now become normal routines for the uh, patient and the caregiver. And those are common things um, that um, families often experience. Um, and yes. Go ahead. I was just going to say, to, and remember to think about what you need from the visit as well. It's not, you know, um, sometimes people will focus only on the um, primary caregiver and on the patient, but also what is it that you want to come away from the visit with? Great opportunity to do some planning as well, you know, um, um, around scheduling, doctor's visits, meals, that kind of stuff. Um, Well, and it sounds like, although you you, you didn't say it um, directly, but I, I think you said it, it, give yourself a little bit of space. Give yourself a little slack to 
learn, assess, enjoy being there with your loved one. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think um, that's really important. Thank you for sort of reframing what I was trying to say in a better way. Um, I, I think that's really true. Um, and I, I guess also while I'm thinking it through, um, respect uh, the um, the person with cancer. Respect their wishes as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Good tip. So, so many people with cancer find it helpful to bring a family member along to their doctor's appointment, like you mentioned. And mm-hmm. if you are far away and unable to come to the appointment, what are some ways that you could still participate in the aspect, you know, that aspect of care? And if you are lucky enough to be in town when there is a, a physician's appointment, what are some of the tips that you would have for making the most of the visits? Sure. So, um, you know, again, I'm going to refer to technology because that really can help. Um, you may be able to Skype with the doctor or at least have a conference call. Um, I know lots of people will take advantage of, of being able to use technology in ways that we didn't have several years ago. Um, I think that if you um, can get records and reports, um, for some people that feels very um, helpful um, it's something concrete, you know, if you can look at mom's blood counts um, and you understand what you're, t- you know, for some people that's going to make them incredibly anxious. They're not going to know what they're looking at or they're going to see something and think it's, you know, they're not going to understand it. But for other people, um, it might help them to see the reports and the um, uh, blood work and things like that. Um, as far as questions to ask, um, the doctor, I think it's going to depend on what's going on. So, for example, um, if your family member is going uh, to see the doctor before um, surgery, um, I think important questions to know are like, well, so how long are they going to be in the hospital? What can we expect when they come home? Um, So that you can figure out, you know, when is the best time for me to be there? Um, You know, if they're discharged home and, 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 you know, it's um, an elderly spouse at home, maybe that's the time you need to go. But if they're going to be discharged home with some nursing care, um, maybe you can delay your visit for a couple of weeks. Um, so that's, you know, um, a question, something to think about um, before surgery. Um, during treatment, um, you know, are there, is there a need to get to appointments? And is that the time you want to come in? Um, does someone need to go with them to the appointment? Um, and what um, um, is is the primary caregiver up to those kinds of, you know, that it can be daily with radiation going to the radiation treatment, or is that a time when you want to go in? So those are some of the questions, you know, when treatment begins. Um, and then I think when treatment ends, it's important that, um, family members, even at a distance, how, how understand um, what is the process of um, recovery post-treatment, you know, when chemo ends. Is it, um, you know, it's very different from radiation, the recovery time, than it is for chemo and what can be expected. And that will help you plan um, a course of action. 
All right, thank you. And in the two minutes that we have left on the show today, Sarah, um, can you just maybe give our listeners some resources? I know you gave some earlier in the yes. show, but could you just repeat some of those and give them some, some, some additional resources? And then is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Sure, in two minutes. <laughs> um, I think people should, uh, family, um, family members who live at a distance should be aware of the um, the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, um, which will give them time off from work. Um, I think there are several good resources. Um, the Cancer Support Community has a book um, that's part of our Frankly Speaking About Cancer series called Support from a Distance. It's a wonderful little spotlight book um, that can be downloaded from our website or co- individual copies can be ordered. Um, they can be ordered through www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Um, a couple of other organizations that are um, work in the um, uh, caregiving space, there is an organization called um, Caring from a Distance um, that um, specifically um, provides resources for people um, who are, find themselves in that situation, um, supporting long distance distance caregivers. There's the Family Caregiver Alliance. Um, and how, how are we doing on time? <laughs> the, I think that's great. I'm going to, to, to thank you, Sarah, so much for being on the show today. Um, it's great to have you here. Again, happy Social Work Awareness Month. And um, you've given us great and helpful information about long-distance caregiving. For those who feel like they would like more information on the topic, please be sure to check out our resource, Sarah mentioned it, Support from a Distance booklet. It's available at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and it is free of charge. You can also call our helpline at one 888 793-9355 and request a copy. Thank you all for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. My name is Linda House, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. As many of you know, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to face that diagnosis alone. For more information about our programs, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org to find a location near you or call our toll-free helpline. Again, I'll mention it slowly, 1-888-793-9355 to speak with a licensed counselor Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until the next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.